Um, and yeah, so the book is written f- specifically like that's my heart is for women who have been abused. Um, also women who grew up just thinking that they're less for the fact that they're women alone. But I do like Jared was saying, like men will <laughs> relate to it too. Like, cause you're, the harm is to you too, right? The harm of like being afraid of your own sexuality, like that affect purity culture in that aspect affected men and women. Um, not knowing that you're allowed to like ask questions, certain things that Christianity in general, thinking you're bad by birth, by just being human, like that affects all of us. What's up skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm Jordan, joined with Jared again back, and we have a special guest today. Joe is joining us on the podcast. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. So uh, Joe reached out to us uh, because she recently wrote a book and that tells her story uh, coming out of uh, very conservative Christianity and kind of the trauma that that inflicted. So Joe, why don't you briefly describe who you are and what your book is about? Yeah, so I'm Joe Lloyd Johnson. Um, I'm creative, kind, social um, empath. I'm an Enneagram too. So like I just a beating heart for the world. <laughs> uh, I'm a mom, which fits that, right? I'm a mom, I'm an author, um, a birth doula, um, and a friend to pretty much everyone I meet. Um, and some of my background, I was born into um, a 1970s commune. Now, obviously, I'm not old enough to like, like that's when it started, was in the 70s, when communes were showing up everywhere. Um And the commune was part of the shepherding or discipleship movement. Um, And so that's kind of my roots. Um, Discipling, shepherding movement is part of kind of assemblies of God, uh, a little charismatic. Uh, People rarely fall down, but, you know, that could happen. Rarely. (laughs) Speaking in tongues. Yeah. Speaking in tongues. Yep. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Um, You know, prophetic words. Um, God speaks directly to you type of thing. Um, grew up my whole life in church, church every Sunday, Bible study throughout the week. Uh, when I was of age, went to youth group, um, ended up being the person like starting Christian campuses on my club, gonna save my school for Jesus. (laughs) Um, and then uh, met my husband while doing a church internship program. Um, other churches call it like a school of ministry. Uh, and we met when we started dating our big thing was like, he's called to be a pastor and I'm called to be a pastor's wife. And here we go. Um, (laughs) that was, yeah. I mean, that's what you're looking for. If, uh, you're in that world. Um, and so that was like our courtship was, you know, him sharing what God's speaking to him about us and our call together. Um, and we hit some hiccups and some bumps along the way. Uh, we ended up being offered a church. Um, well, him, he was offered a church pastorate uh, when we were 30. And ironically, that was like as the um, the cards of the house started to fall. It was like during the time where we were like finally offered this thing that we had worked our entire lives to gain. Uh, we were like, um, don't know if I want it now. Um, so I'm only 36. My deconstruction is very recent. Um, but yeah, that's me today. So, uh, the, just wanted to go ahead and share the title of the book just so we get the, Oh yeah, that's a good point. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) A good point. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the book is called Silenced in Eden. Um, so my grandparents believed that we were called to, so my grandparents were the ones who started the commune. Explain that. (laughs) Um, and they were creating the closest thing to Eden on earth, right? Trying to redeem man because the garden was when we had perfect communion with God. Um, and so they were trying to go back to that place where we're having communion with God every day. And so they created their little five acres 
where God was supposed to come all the time. Um, and it was there in their idea of Eden where I was um, sexually abused. Uh, trigger warning for whoever's watching, we'll probably be talking about uh, childhood sexual abuse and sexuality and Christianity's uh, negative effects on a, specifically a woman's sexuality, but in my opinion, all sexuality. Um, and so in their idea of a Garden of Eden, um, I was sexually abused. And then that those topics aren't talked about. So it was very much purposely silenced. So the title, Silenced in Eden. And I noticed throughout the book, there's a, there's a theme of silence, not just in Eden, but in, even through like later on in your life too, like once you had left the commune as well. So um, it, the, the title is definitely fitting for the book for sure. Yeah. I mean, Eden can also just symbolize Christianity yeah. in general, right? Any right. kind of relationship with God. Um, but yes. Yeah. Um, well, I really appreciate you meeting with us, you know, to share your story and to, you know, promote your book. I highly encourage anybody who's listening to to go out and get a copy and read it. Um, I think this is, it sounds like a story, though it's personal, is also uh, not individual. This is a common experience to hear for people, particularly women who come out of very conservative circles. Um, it's interesting that the... Uh, oppressed sexuality doesn't lead to pure behavior, interestingly enough, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, like shame and secrecy doesn't actually breed health. Who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't, no one could have predicted this. Well, in the in the forward of the book, um, the person you had to write the forward talked about how the book helped them deal with their own stuff. And as I was reading, uh, your stories are just small, like little stories. You know, each one has it. It kind of feels like it's building the whole time. Like everything just keeps piling up. So as I kept reading, I felt like I was just this weight was just like pressing on me because everything was stacking up. But it also made me realize about my story. And you know, I grew up in a very conservative Christian home, not as conservative as a commune, but still, like I kept going back to things, and they were just small things too, like you know, a simple thing of like being in my grandfather's study. He was a Baptist preacher, and you know, little moments I would have with him. So, I really appreciate that you were able to connect with the reader and share those, you know, really intimate moments that sometimes they just pass us by. And I don't know if that was conscious when you were writing the book, or how did you go about, you know, choosing what you wanted to share. So writing the book, like when I started writing, it wasn't exactly like, who am I going to touch? Right. It was, I need to sit with these memories and figure out like how they fucked me up. <laughs> um, and so it was very much like a therapeutic process at the beginning. Um, I start, I was writing while deconstructing and like, I would sit with, you know, the idea I, I in um, the book, I talk about heaven and hell um, and the concept of hell and my fear of anyone I knew that wasn't the proper type of Christian. Because like it wasn't in my world, it was like a Christian, but you have to be like the right kind of Christian. <laughs> um, right. And so it it would like I remember saying, especially in high school, like being up late crying for friends because I was since again, my bleeding heart, like love the world. Um, so someone like me, the concept of a literal hell, uh, I say like a literal hell was hell for me because I was so afraid of my friends actually having eternal pain. Um, and so like when I started being like, Hmm, do I believe that there is a hell? And if, I don't believe there's a hell now and I can like let go of that concept of hell. Like what would it have been like for 16 year old me to not have had that weight of hell? And how did that mess me up to have this idea that all my friends um, were going like if they weren't the Bible study friends uh, were going to be tortured um, and it was interesting. It was through writing the book that I started to see like, oh, I started to ha put those people at arm's length because I couldn't have them in my heart as closely. Um, so I had to like alienate my relationship with them. And so it was just it was writing the book was very much me processing like my own shit. 
and being like, oh, this makes sense why I acted this way way back when. Um, and this was that moment where like it, how it affected me. Um, so the first version of the book was very much like a concept and all these t- like threads. Um, mm-hmm. And I shared some of the book with my sister who is an English teacher. Um, and she was like, Joanna, this is really good. And I think other people would um, not just enjoy reading it, but like that this would speak to people and help them figure out their threads of stuff. Uh, and she's the most well-read person I know personally. So I'm like, well, if she thinks I'm a decent writer, like maybe, maybe I'm a good writer. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I concur. So then, so. <laughs> well, thank you, Jared. I appreciate that. It's still something that if you have read part of the book, like, you know, it's something that's hard for me because um, I grew up not educated very well, at, especially at the beginning. So it's hard for me to believe like, hey, I, I can be good at something, especially literacy. Um, but anyways, so it came out as a journal um, and then it led to a very long, hard year and a half of like making it into a book. Um, and the woman who wrote the forward was the reason I published because uh, I shared with her the like very messy version that I had. Um, and if you, if you read the forward, she had kind of light bulb moments of like, oh, I was also sexually abused. And um, this book, I mean, she told me at one point, like this book saved my life because when she first had her flashbacks, which I talk about in my book, when I get flashbacks and how uh, just intense that episode of PTSD can be, um, she like had my book (laughs) and that was what she held on to while she was in that really dark season. Um, So for me to be like, oh, hey, I helped one person and this book is not yet like done well. (laughs) So if I polish it up, maybe I'll help more people. So that was the like, all right, put yourself out there and do it. Um, which was really scary. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very personal story to put out there. So I can imagine that would be difficult to tell. And I can also see like how that would be very helpful. I came from an abusive household, physical abuse and talking to other people, both who shared that experience, but also who didn't. So like, you know, sometimes it's like, what you mean you, you can sleep when the door's not locked and you're not in like a secured area. What is, Oh, so that's a weird <laughs> thing for me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you're saying the thing that the ones that say like, Oh yeah, no dude, I totally lock the door or I totally leave a light on or whatever coping way that they've survived to hear them. You're like, Oh, I'm not crazy. Yeah. Um, so I'm part of a louder than silence group. Um, what a dollar from every book sale actually goes to help. Um, they pay for EMDR therapy, but they also, um, for women who have been sexually abused. Um, but they also do like a 12 week group. So you get together once a week for 12 weeks with only women who have also experienced a level of sexual abuse. And it was so amazing being in a group where they, they get stuff like that. They're like, oh, well, I have this really dysfunctional whatever. And everyone in that group are like, oh, mm-hmm, me too. Like, so to just understand like, oh, okay, this is a normal uh, repercussion of what we went through. You don't feel so crazy, which is nice. I was going to ask, uh, so what's, before I do that though, is this, was this your first project like writing professional writing or had you done anything prior to this? Um, yeah, this is my first puppy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so one of the things, so you had talked about heaven um, and I don't want to give away anything in the book, but there's a moment in, in the latter part of the book where you kind of have this realization. Is that that when you were in Hawaii where you have this part and you're like, is that that moment where you started to look back and said, what would it have been like had I had this view of he- hell in heaven. Um. So in that moment in Hawaii um, was when my husband, it was around the same season when my husband was offered the pastorate. So it was kind of like the, the earth was starting to, to shake under us a little bit. Um, 
and it was when he's offered that um it's kind of hard to remember specifically because we were leading that bible study where that happened um at the same time so i'm like mm-hmm. not sure which came exactly first but i know it was the same time where we started to question very big basic theology um things um and it wasn't that that moment um was when I was like, I think I'm going to let go of the concept of hell. But it wasn't until I sat down a year and a half, two years later and started writing where I was like, how did that concept that I am now uh, okay with not holding, how did that affect me growing up? Mm. Yeah, I know that the concept of hell is damaging to a lot of people. And like you said, it, it, it doesn't seem to make much sense, uh, like you were going through all of this turmoil and anguish now imagining your loved ones dead and burning and you know being tortured but heaven is supposed to be a place of joy and and happiness how could for instance my grandmother is a very devout person um so if she's right she's in heaven and i if she's right am going to hell how could she possibly be happy in heaven knowing that her grandson is burning in hell it just doesn't make any sense to me Right. Um, well, there's a part there's a part in the book where I um, am smitten with a guy who's like a it was clear to me he was going to church because he liked me. Right. So I'm like, he's not not really a Christian. Like, um, And I laugh about it now because I'm like, <laughs> here I am. <laughs> Didn't matter. Um, but uh, I remember like that was the thing is I was in my mind. I was like, I cannot fall in love with him because. I heaven wouldn't be heaven if I fell in love with him. Right. Mm. And so again, it was that I have to not love these people, which is like Christianity is all about loving your neighbor, but then you can't love them because if you're, if you love them truly, then if they don't go to heaven, you you're not in heaven. So is this really weird? How does that work? Yeah, that's an interesting insight that the, the one of the central themes of Jesus' ministry is love, and yet a lot of the theology, particularly in conservative circles, almost almost works very hard to be counter to that. Yeah, if you think about it, there's also this, like, we don't, some churches won't deal with today because they're focused on eternity. And I remember having like a conversation with my dad about like, I was helping a girlfriend watching her son and, and he was like, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't save her soul. And I'm like, to the baby who is getting a good night's sleep and who I'm like, I I think it matters. (laughs) I think it does matter um, to the mom who is really young and gets a break uh, and probably needs it for her mental health. I think it matters, but in his mind, it didn't matter unless I saved both of their eternal souls. Um, and so I do feel like there's this like not showing up in the moment to show up for this kind of abstract idea of helping someone versus like mm. help actually helping them like right <laughs> no. now. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's a good segue. I think being focusing on the, on this nebulous future rather than the moment and that letting the, the present, Uh, suffer because of that, which I think leads to a lot of these very damaging behaviors. Um, If you want to take us back to growing up in the commune and uh, the traumatic experiences, but mainly like I'm thinking, how did that environment contribute? Like what were the, 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 the things that laid the groundwork to both cause that behavior, but also then excuse it and uh, perpetuate it? Yeah. So, um, the commune, like I said, was started in the 70s. It was like 73, 75. Um, my, uh, it started as my grandparents taking in like kids who had crappy family lives. Um, so it seemed like it started from a very pure, like, let's help in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 70s, there's drug issues going on. Uh, so it's kind of snowballed into they would just let people come and stay as long as they were trying to uh, get their lives together. Um, But then the leaders started to get married and have children. So you have families with young children and people coming off of drugs 
or homeless people trying to figure out their lives, all living on one plot of land uh, with this concept that like, we're all seeking God. So we're all good people. Um, and, and I think, and I put this in the back of the book, like it's, it's tribalism. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. we're all the same tribe. So we're hot. Like there's, again, we're in the garden. We're safe here. We're all safe here. Um, and so the kids would very much be watched like communally, like, uh, they're all outside playing together. They're in the commune. They're safe. Um, and so before, it happened to me. It happened to the boy who did it to me. Um, and it's one of those weird things where you're like, I'm just a girl trying to sh- share my story, but I'm also <laughs> in order to do so and to understand like the history of it, I had to like interview people and ask questions and like, this doesn't make sense. So I have a hunch something happened here. So what I do know is that um, there was at least two boys who were abused by an adult uh, male uh, in the commune. And then one of those boys started acting out on girls his age and younger. Um, And the kids were just not watched. They were, they had a school um, that was ran. So everybody's living on the same area, right? And there's a church building that is also a school Monday through Friday. Uh, and some kids would come in that weren't living on the property. Um, but during after school, before the dinner bell, everyone just plays outside. Uh, and the kids who like are crawling and very little are in the house with a mom watching them. But everybody else is it's a free fall. And it, I mean, as a kid, like it's kind of fun. You can do whatever you want. Um, but Multiple kids like rode their bike down the hill and ran into things. And I remember um, breaking a finger, trying to open up a macadamia nut. Like, <laughs> we were just, um, what's that that book where they're just like, it's Free just range chaos. children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, that, that was us. Um, and so the he starts abusing young kids. Uh, it seems like he had moments where it was somewhat caught, um, but nobody wants to think that a kid would be doing something other than like curiosity with another kid. Um, And when the commune fell apart, um, when my grandfather actually passed away when I was only four and it limped along for like two years, but in situations like that, the leaders, the, were, you know, God, (laughs) they're God essentially. And, um, after he passed, it pretty much just fell apart. It took a while, but, um, and so the, I, it happened to me at the very end. It actually happened at, I believe it happened at the commune property. And then also once we started moving off of the place, but we all were still friends. Um, and so it happened after that as well. Um, and I shared with his brother, because again, we're all family. I was like, your brother's doing something weird. And then the word got out. He told his parents and then my parents and my parents um, did call Child Protective Services. Um, and the thing that's so frustrating now is that instead of Child Protective Services being told like, hey, six months ago, three months ago, we were all living together (laughs) and maybe you should interview all of these kids that were all living together with this person who we know perpetrated more than just this one girl. Um, Instead of that happening, they were like, oh yeah, he confessed. It only happened to them. He says it never, nothing happened to any, he never did it to anyone else. (laughs) He's he's clearly a, you know, somebody you can trust. Um, And before they go to, I don't, again, I'm an investigator. No one wants to talk about this. Um, so I have the little bit that a few people have been willing to share with me. Um, but I do know that the church elders who were left 
again, this church has fallen apart, but the church elders that were left met with the boy who's 13 and he confessed to the few he already got caught. Um, and then the, uh, they had talked to some other people cause they had daughters. They knew that there were other victims at that time and said, told the victims, Oh, well, he got caught for Joanna, so don't worry about it. And that um, not only makes that kind of downplays the scope of the problem, but it also doesn't give them a uh, avenue to speak about what happened to them. It almost it it sounds like they're almost telling them, well, what happened to you isn't important because the behavior's already been dealt with. So you know, which almost seems like it's putting more emphasis on the the. Uh, the aggressor than the victim you know oh yeah absolutely uh and like you're saying yeah it limits the scope for the authorities to know what's really happening um it also steals the voice of the victims who didn't get to act to be like for me <clears throat> i was six years old he was 13 um i completely blocked the memory so I had to, at 35, 34, read a piece of paper where someone's asking my six-year-old self what happened. And it was through reading my own replies that I was like, oh, oh, that one flashback, maybe that's what she's talking about. Um, and so these other victims who were also young, like, I don't know if they know their own story and if mm -hmm. that would have been if they would have been given that same opportunity to right. have their words recorded, maybe they would know more of what the hell they went through. Um, so yeah, it's stealing the voice for the victims. It's not uh, honoring that they were victimized. Uh, so that's really hard for me to not be extremely bitter at people who, I mean, if you're clergy in California, you're, required if you mm -hmm. know you're a required reporter so they didn't report when they were required to report um and also the ignorance of they only asked the girls so i know that there were eight girls uh as i've talked to other people i know he approached men or boys he approached boys and made offers to boys uh i don't know if there are male victims that he also perpetrated or whatever and it plays into that um idea that like sexuality is only this one way and mm -hmm. he couldn't have possibly tried to victimize his boy his guy friends even though we know that the person who perpetrated him was male so it's like yeah. just the ignorance of the church leaders in that moment it's what? the ignorance of the church leaders um, and their inability to handle the situation and also unwillingness to go get the experts who could have handled it, but also the ignorance of the children and victims who had they been given a secular education and been better informed about what is healthy and not healthy touching and these sort of things, then it's possible that that kind of behavior might have been caught earlier and fewer people would have been victimized just from education. Hey, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you, the thing too, with um, a, a group like the group that I was a part of in a lot of um, Christianity that teaches obedience, um, trains kids to just obey. Mm -hmm. um, they don't like have that autonomy. They are not taught that autonomy of like, this is my body and I get to decide what happens to it. Um, and so even just that like really basic, not just sexual um, education, but just like personhood. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're in a commune, your personhood's stripped. Like it's all about the church. It's all about what God's doing in the group. Um, you're not very much an individual. So even that, like a kid wouldn't think, so much about like themselves as a separate it's like well this i can't say anything because it's not good for the group versus this isn't good for me 
and I should tell somebody because I should feel safe. Yeah. Well, thank you for telling your story and sharing with us. Um, when I was reading that section of the book, the one thing that surprised me most, uh, and it has to do with this this concept of silence that, that runs throughout the book, is the fact that nobody even checked on you to ask you how you were doing and how like that just blew me away that they were even silent with you. And um, it was that something that you just felt like throughout like that kind of environment. It was like, we just don't talk about things. We don't, I don't. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, uh, also it's just the, it's cultural. I think mm-hmm. that we're a lot more comfortable talking about things nowadays. Um, so a family, I don't, I got like our parents' generation weren't as comfortable talking about things just right. in general. Um, but also like the focus of my parents at that time was so again, like the whole, um, and when you're in a commune or high control group like this, where your focus is the church, your, um, family structure is off because it's the leader is the head and you're like running your family, but also like auntie over here is helping and they're helping and you're trusting everybody. And, and so the like sanctity and safety of family is not there. So mom and dad are mom and dad, but also like auntie over here also will put me to bed and also will spank me and also will, um, so you don't have that that type of bond with your mom and your dad uh, that creates safety for those conversations, mm. right? A conversation like, like, hey, so-and-so did this and it didn't feel right, but I don't really know why it didn't feel right, but I didn't like it. Um, that's, vi- that's a vulnerable thing to say, mm. even at six years old. Um And a kid has to feel safe to be vulnerable. So like if there's no safety and the parents aren't creating safety because they have this false sense of safety, right? Commune safe. So I don't need to create safety. It just is safe. There's a couple other things in the book where you talk about being vulnerable and it leads to some other consequences. Like it's something extremely innocent, you know, with the swing set, for example. And like, so that could even teach you like, oh, I don't speak about anything because it I'm going to get spanked or somebody's going to get spanked, you know? Um, so. Yeah, absolutely. There is definitely um, in my form, like the form of Christianity, it was the failures are our failures. Um, and like, we're called to be examples for God and we're called to uh, be a light to the world. And, uh, and God helps us not sin. So this idea of like, if I mess up, it's on me and I should be ashamed of it doesn't breed like a, hey, mom, I skinned my knee. <laughs> Can you help clean me up? Like just the littlest things as a kid, you internalize that. Oh, it must be my fault. Um, and then if it's my fault, I mean, I get into this in, in the book with a situation where Um, my uncle's living with us and he isn't the safest. (laughs) Um, And I made it my fault because I was like, well, I backdocked him and he's my elder. Uh, So yeah, it's as the kid, you internalizes, I must've done something wrong or this wouldn't have happened to me. Yeah. That's, um, that's pretty profound to think about looking back at it and like how much did you just, it's ingrained. It's almost like taught to you to keep yourself quiet or to not bring things up or, or to take on the fault. Um, the system kind of makes it so. Yeah. And I was just, Oh, sorry. I was just thinking, um, recent, very recently, um, looking back at my lack of proper education, um, and how I internalized that as like, it was my fault that I wasn't able to read. Uh, and I remember, um, needing help for like homework, right? Most, a lot of kids need help. Um, and feeling like a burden, like I've got to go ask mom for help and she's busy. And, you know, she had four kids, she was busy and she was working full time and like legit, but it was the reality of like, I wasn't okay 
to have a need that I that was just a legitimate need. I didn't feel okay to have those. And because I had those, I felt guilt about having regular ass needs. Um, yeah. And that's something I like struggle with now. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh yeah, Joe, you get to have needs. Like, it's okay. You're allowed to ask your husband for like a night off because you need help with something or you could, you're, just very basic things. I still very much struggle with. I'm human and I have needs. And not having guilt associated with that. Right. Um, right. Uh, right. In, in many conservative circles, it's a very guilt driven system. You know, you you're born bad and you should feel bad about it. Is the idea. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I did. It worked. I well, that, definitely <laughs> felt bad about being human. That makes me think of uh, something else you talk about in the book and how um, needing help, you know, uh, sometimes as a Christian in, in this Christian world, you just want to be able to pray and make it go away. But obviously you're still working through some, through some of these things and it takes time and it takes professional help in some instances where we need to seek therapy. Did you want to speak a little bit about that and just that concept of just being able the, the uh, resistance for Christians to seek outside help, I guess, you know? Um, yeah. Um, certain things you can't pray away. Um, and trust me, I've tried. <laughs> um, and that was very much like, um, so we were taught to pray it away. And my husband, my, um, excuse me, my dad, uh, injured his back when I was like two months old, uh, still hasn't been healed. And he prays harder than anybody I've ever met. <laughs> um, and we, yeah, we didn't growing up. We didn't really believe in mental health. Um, God healed. If you're depressed, you need to ask God for joy. Um, if you, uh, had, I mean, like schizophrenia was considered something that could be healed. Um, it's obviously everything was possession. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for my husband that the ignorance around mental health was the like last straw for him. Um, for me, it was definitely headship and patriarchy and having three daughters and being like, oh, no, this fucked me enough. I'm not going to let it mess with them. <laughs> um, but for my husband, who has anxiety and who's a fam like every member of his family has a level of anxiety or ADD or whatever, things that could need some professional guidance. Um, and he has memories of people coming and praying demons out of his mom when it was like, no, they just messed up her medication and she needs to get back on it. <laughs> like, yeah. The, there can definitely be this, this idea that if you're not being healed, it's be, it's again, it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. You're not praying hard enough. And also that if you seek outside help, it's like, you're not trusting God, you know? Yeah. So like if God wanted you to be healed, he'd heal you, you know, that sort of right. Idea. Right. And that there's a purpose for your pain or lack of healing. Like, oh, well, God wants to use it for something before he can heal you. Uh, yeah. Uh, Which, I definitely. Oh, I was. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, I definitely don't believe that anymore. Uh, and, and in the book, I talk about when I get flashbacks and being like, I think I want to see a therapist, but I don't know if my parents would be OK with me seeing a therapist. And then them kind of downgrade, like downplaying what happened and being like, well, I should just be fine then. Like I shouldn't need yeah. anybody's else, anybody's help. Um, and I internalized it so much that I told myself I was fine. Mm. And trust me here years later, like, no, I was not fine. <laughs> I, my brain did what it had to do to survive being 16, having flashbacks and being like, Oh, you have nothing else to do but to like push this down deeper and not address it. And so that's what it did. The 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 whole structure, you mentioned the the patriarchy and the harm that it did to you. Um something that has struck me in the past few years is that it it harms everyone involved, not <clears throat> just 
I mean, it clearly harms women by subjugating them, by silencing them, and by encouraging harm on them. But it somehow manages to not even benefit the group it's supposed to be benefiting because they also can't help ask for help when you're in a situation like that. You're supposed to be the one that's in charge. So if anything goes wrong, it's your fault. And that's you know all there is to it. Even more guilt is laid on yeah. top of it. So uh, is that does that reflect kind of the experience your husband had? And I was wondering, um, how have you navigated that when you're deconstructing, trying to like grow from these patriarchal roots? Yeah, um, it's not easy, <laughs> um, especially like uh, what I had a podcast air this week or something. And my husband like is the first one to want to jump on and listen. Um, and he literally like an hour or two before jumping on here. Uh, he asked me to do something in the kitchen. I was in a shit mood and I was like, Hey, you like just back off, you know, you can do that too. And he was like, he was like, Oh, I'm not this patriarchal, whatever. And I was like, Hey, well, well. <laughs> I was just pointing out that I have my hands full and you're right there. Um, it, it was, it's one of those things where I, I even told him, I was like, you realize when I talk about, um, patriarchy and men who hold their authority as a way of like, purposely pushing a woman down. I was like, I'm not talking about you. Like, and he's like, well, I like was, I was in that. I'm like, you were raised in that. You were never that. Um, and it's kind of this weird thing because he never, me and him were friends. First of all, we were like buddies before we ever dated. Um, and so he saw me as a friend and a peer before he saw me as like his future wife, um, which I think definitely played into just our dynamic. Uh, we were already friends. We already were working um, in like a, we were running a youth um, Bible study together already. Uh, so I, I never came in as like the arm candy or the cute girl, whatever. I was like his buddy. And then he was like, oh, and you're cute. Hold on. <laughs> um, so Sometimes it takes us longer to realize these things, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he was younger, so I was like, whatever. And then he finally grew up and I was like, oh, okay. Um, but so it was, it's been interesting because I have to remind him like, hey, you do help out. Like, hey, you have stepped up. Um, yeah. So that dynamic is still something that I feel like we're bumping up against a bit right now. Uh, just as I start to like name it and he has to like realize, oh, this isn't me. This is like the system we lived under that we both have come out of. So she's not throwing me out with the bathwater. Like she's not saying that I'm part of the issue. Um, but there was definitely like the very beginning of our marriage. The only relationships we were um, shown were the woman stays home with the kids and the husband's supposed to make more money and the woman does the dishes and does uh, the baking and the cooking and the whatever. Um, and so we had moments where we kind of fall into that. Um, <clears throat> after we had our first daughter, I knew I wanted to stay home. So I was like, all right, I'll jump into that role. That's totally fine. Um, and it was at like our third kid where my husband was like, Oh, if I don't start like helping, like she's going to break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like and I I love her and I don't want her to have a mental breakdown and then be stuck with the kids and her in like a hospital. Um so we've had more years of a healthy shared uh workload than we've had outside of Christianity, which I think I again I think that's kind of like it was our slippery slope, right? Once he was like, hey, I want her to feel equal. And then it was like, oh, well, that doesn't really fit with the system that tells me she's not equal. Right. Um, well, yeah. some, sometimes they'll pull the separate but equal line. Like, oh, oh, women, men and women are equal. They're just, you know, not allowed to teach and stuff because they wouldn't want to worry their pretty little heads over that, you know? <laughs> yeah, that line hit me so much that it's, I think, a chapter title in the book. <laughs> um and I point out like separate, but equals never like if history has no, taught us equal. anything yeah. that that's never actually equal, like that's a clearly bullshit lie. Right. Um, 
And I share a story about uh, when I was an intern, I was helping with the children's ministry and me and the female part of that ministry. Cause it was like, I was um, <clears throat> thinking churches have like two ways. Okay. That they deal with women in ministry. They either say women like can't teach at all and they can't preach. They can't teach unless they're just doing kids <clears throat> or they say, Oh, a woman can, but only if she does it with her husband. So you have like the pastor and the pastor's wife or the pastor and pastor, but we all know that like the male's the real head of it. Mm -hmm. Right. And she has to be like submitted to him. So um, when I was like 16, I was going to one of those churches where like a female could be titled pastor, but it was always like they are the pastors, the male and the female husband and wife or pastor. Um, but she had to be submitted to him. Right. So anyways, in that kind of a church, um, I was the assistant of the, the children's pastor, but it was the female. And we would come up with the, what he's going to share on like the whole sermon, the kids, um, program, the like fun puppets or whatever. We came up with it all. And then on Sunday, her husband would show up. <laughs> I would hand him the script that we worked all week on. <clears throat> he would grab the microphone and read from it. And they together were the ministry. I remember being like, at the time, I didn't even think about like, hey, <laughs> us two girls literally do all the work. He's the one up in front with the mic. And they together are the ones that are coined the leaders. Um, and that's separate, but equal. <laughs> yeah. well, one is doing all of the work. And the other one is standing there smiling, saying, thanks for the work you did. And now I will present this in front of everyone like I did part of it. Which contributes to like, you've got the attitude of silence when it comes to negative things, not wanting to bring them up, but also silencing their victories because you can't have a victory that's yours. It's at best yours and God's, but you know, probably well, yours it, and your husband's. I was going to say, well, as a woman, it's not yours and God's. It's yours and your husband's and God's. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned that you've been, uh, your deconstruction is relatively recent and you've kind of alluded to it a couple of times. What was the watershed moment for you where as an adult, um, you and your husband, I know you, you mentioned it was like when you were getting this pastorship. Um, how did that look having spent your entire life steeped in this worldview and then you, you realize this isn't for me? What did that look like for you? Um, yeah, so it, it's interesting. I'm actually writing um a second possibly like a second third book and the second one is going to be more specific to like this um because when my husband and I had some bumps in the road and kind of were not in ministry for a while and I was the one like we're gonna do this this is still gonna happen I'm believing I'm praying while he's not working for it and I'm gonna you know when striving and still hoping um and then we end up in Hawaii and we're going to Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel is part of the, the one where a woman cannot have a title as pastor. Uh, it's not her and him. It's him, <clears throat> all him, full stop. And we are, my husband was preaching at the Calvary Chapel we went to. Uh, there's a nearby Calvary Chapel that the pastor had sex scandal and ran off island and so they have no pastor so they asked my husband to share a couple times on sunday and then they took us to dinner and like hey what do you think about like being pastor um and my husband and i have a conversation after and i was like so calvary chapel would i even be able to like share my testimony like get up and do like a before like hey god's sharing this one thing with me not do a whole sermon. I just would like, what if I have a word to share? Could I get on stage? And again, here is, I did it, a uh, church, a school of ministry. I have been leading Bible studies years at that time. Uh, his last like two sermons, I would be like, hey, look up the Greek in this word. And like, <laughs> you know, like I'm literally helping him excited about, you know, what God is doing for us. <clears throat> um and he looks at me, he's like, I don't, I don't think you would be able to even get on like behind the pulpit. I don't think that they're, they would be okay with that. 
And so in that, that was my moment of, okay, wait, you're telling me that in the five years where you were struggling and drinking and I was the like going after God, we're going to get this still that even though I did that, <laughs> now you're going to be the one with the title pastor with the only one who can speak. So if I have any word, I have to have you share it. And, um, and he was like, how, how do you feel about that? Like, are you okay with that? And I was like, in my head screaming, fuck no. (laughs) And, and having my, you know, again, I spent my whole life silent sitting there going, am I okay with that? Like, can I do that longer of being quiet? Can I continue to just spend my whole life silent behind you sitting in the front row keeping your kids quiet and letting you be the you know one man show um and just like how unfair that was like that for me was that breaking point of like what the hell this doesn't make any sense uh and there was a lot of other things with the church too like they for me what when I look back even now when I look back at my years with Christianity. It's the relationships. It's that youth group where you like have your buddies showing up and you play games and you feel like someone's in your corner and someone's there for you. Um, in that church, it was so surface that like nobody hung out. Nobody went to lunch afterwards. Nobody got there and talked um, over coffee early. Like there was no relationship. And just seeing how church can be so surface, people just dress up show up and do their like, okay, sit in the pew for this long, sing this many hymns, and go home. I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. This doesn't seem like community at all. And if community is the one thing that like I want, maybe I should not be looking inside of a church. You should be looking at a commune. <laughs> I hear they're great. I hear they're great. <laughs> yeah, totally fine. You know, all that. Um, I was gonna. So, as you're deconstructing throughout throughout the book, you uh, you quote quite a few scripture verses, um, and some some points it seems like you know you're kind of pointing out some of the hypocrisy in there, but there also seems to be a reverence for it too. Are you still struggling with that at all? And like finding out where you fit in that picture and how you view like the Christian text or the Christian worldview coming from it. Um, so like the book was written in the state I was in while writing it. Right. (laughs) Um, like I said, it took like a year and a half of editing or a couple Mm -hmm. months from that. So for the last like two years, I've been still steadily on my own journey. Um, and when I published the book, I don't think I was really ready to like fully let go of, I mean, Christianity was my label for 30 mm-hmm. plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the, it is the culture that we all have come from in reality, all of us, <laughs> um, if you grew up in it or not, like it has affected our culture. Um, and so at the time, um, I think I, still had some fondness for it. Um, I definitely have hit at times a like burn the motherfucker down (laughs) (laughs) Um, place. Uh, And I think that's something that I'm still like, I I feel like I, it ebbs and flows. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of science, Mike, uh, Mike McGar, McCar. Um, He, He's a Christian turned atheist turned progressive Christian. Um, and, but he likes to say, like, I'm an atheist some days and I'm a Christian some days. Uh, I won't call myself a Christian ever, uh, but I do feel like I have, like, burned the church to the ground uh, days. And, like, you know, if it works for you, good for you days. <laughs> so that's kind yeah. of where I'm at at the moment. It's. It's funny, we had a friend of mine, Art, on here who's a very progressive pastor, and we asked him a similar question. He was like, yeah, I'm like 30% atheist. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting, too, because growing up atheists, you know, my parents would talk about atheists as these, like, they only believe in science, and they hate Christians, and they don't believe in 
any kind of spirituality. They don't believe in any kind of other, they're like materialistic, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and like on this side, I'm like talking to atheists and like, yeah, you guys seem like, you guys seem totally cool. I've heard it like atheists that are like almost mystic types. And I'm like, oh, yeah. you guys are like a really wide range. We oh, yeah. In all not- shapes and sizes. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's some atheists who are, total jerks there's some who are really cool there are some that are very materialist there's some that are you know very spiritual so right exactly that realm was what was so like mind-blowing to me because when i first like deconverted um i wasn't sure what the hell to call myself and then i met some atheists and i'm like oh yeah no we're okay (laughs) because i'm not really agnostic like i don't believe in any specific deity like that there is a separate I definitely am spiritual. Um, I've experienced it. And the, the book talks a little bit about it. Like I've experienced um, things that don't, the physical body doesn't explain. Um, and I've still, I still have weird shit happened where I'm like, I feel like I need to tell you something and I'll like share something and they're like cry. And I'm like, Christian me would be like, that was a word from God. <clears throat> me. And now I'm yeah. like, maybe I just sense that shit on you. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, uh, about your story. I think I've, I know a lot of, um, women that I grew up with in the church who have very similar stories, but don't feel empowered to share it often because they're still in families where that wouldn't be allowed. And so they kind of have to struggle on, on their own by themselves. And so it's super important that, uh, people who have experienced that who have the the bravery and also the capacity to you know tell them that they're not alone and that you know that this isn't your fault and it's not you know and there's there's a way out of it i think that's uh, a really important message for people to hear and so on that uh where can people find this book and where should they look for you if they want to hear more uh of your work yeah <clears throat> so on instagram i'm joe lloyd johnson i'm on facebook also joe lloyd johnson but instagram is my life i'll actually check that (laughs) more often um and the book silenced in eden is on amazon um and also if anybody who's listening is female and been um, sexually abused uh louder than silence uh is an amazing organization that has 12-week groups and also helps pay for EMDR therapy. I'm currently doing EMDR on um, their grant. And like my goal is to at least raise enough money to pay back for what they're paying for me. Um, And they always need money. Like sadly, they're, they just, whoever is willing to help support their cause. Uh, I know their wait list for EMDR is pretty backed up at this point. Um, But as like a victim, it, it's costly to get the help. Like if you honor like, Hey, I do need therapy. I do need help. And that's okay to need help. Sometimes people don't have the money for it. Um, so this organization is amazing trying to actually help people get the help that they deserve, uh, that you, you know, is needed. And, um, and yeah, so the book is written specifically, like that's my heart is for women who have been abused Um, Also women who grew up just thinking that they're less for the fact that they're women alone. But I do like Jared was saying, like men will (laughs) relate to it too. Like, cause you're the harm is to you too, right? The harm of like being afraid of your own sexuality, like that affect purity culture in that aspect affected men and women. Um, Not knowing that you're allowed to like ask questions, certain things that Christianity in general, thinking you're bad by birth, by just being human, like that affects all of us. Uh, And so anybody can relate to that. And I've had people who um, were sexually abused and grew up non-Christian completely. And they're like, no, that still really spoke to me. Um, I have a reader right now who grew up um, in uh, a non-Christian, like hippie cult. Um, And she was like, this is totally relevant for me too. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I feel like anybody can get something from it. Um, but yeah, Silence in Eden on Amazon. 
really long-winded sorry <laughs> that's fine we'll put the the link to not only the book but also uh the charity you mentioned and some other resources in the description uh it's a shame we don't live in a modern country where you can just get the help you need if you need it uh right. that would that be would nice. be nice yeah <laughs> But uh, we won't go into socialized medicine here at the end. Uh, but yeah, those those links will all be in the description. Uh, so and if if you need help, please do reach out to them. And if you can't find anything, if all else fails, reach out to myself or Jared. I'm sure Joe, and we'll make sure you get the help you need. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So again, thanks a ton for coming on and sharing your story. We really appreciate it. Uh, everyone should go check out that book. It's uh, I actually checked Amazon. And if you have Kindle Unlimited, it's free. You can just read it just right there at Kindle Unlimited. Boom. <laughs> Too easy. Uh, but do that. And until next time, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.